Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me again to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. For the sake of context, we'll begin at verse 1 and we'll be reading down through verse 14, verse 19. Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it, and you shall not touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loin coverings. Then they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be you gave to be with me, she gave to me from the tree, and I ate. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And Yahweh God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than any of the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and conception. In pain you will bear children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
Well, let's once again ask for God's help as we come to his word. Let's turn our face again to the throne of grace. Let's pray. Father, it is grace that we need to rightly understand your word. For me to articulate it faithfully and helpfully. And for each of us to hear from you what you would have us to do. And to hear from you that which is displeasing to you and how to be made right with you. Please help in this great endeavor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I used the illustration last time of a physician and needing a good diagnostician if you go to a physician. Imagine, if you will, that you're going to an orthopedic surgeon and you begin to ask him for some advice about a surgery that uh, has been recommended. And he says, sure, yeah, no problem. I can cut here and cut there and we can do this and we can do that. And you get something strange feeling from him. And so, you know, you look around. Sometimes you go into the offices and they've got just one wall after another just covered with all of their degrees, places they've been. And you notice that there's none in this doctor's office. So where'd you go to school? Well, Quackery 101 or something. You know, he gives some strange name you'd never heard of before. And he said, you know, just to be honest, I decided to skip anatomy and physiology. I, don't, I doesn't know the names of the bones. Doesn't know, you know how they fit together, how they work. Is that an orthopedist that you would want to correct something in your body? Say, so you don't even know the basics of how this body functions. You don't even know how it's supposed to function. How can you tell me what's wrong with it? I just want to make you happy. Whatever makes you happy, that's what I'll do. Well, that's not the kind of doctor I hope you would want to go to for orthopedic surgery. You would rather have somebody who understood the human body, under, had studied and said, okay, this is where it comes from, and understood the various ways that that body can be injured or uh, and, and how to put it back together. Uh, you, you want somebody who, who understands from the beginning what they ought to know. And that's what these chapters do for us in terms of our understanding the world in which we live. Without a knowledge, a clear knowledge of Genesis chapters 1 through 3, the rest of the scriptures don't have anything to hang on. It's foundational for everything else that uh, is here. Matter of fact, one man said that Genesis 3.15 is what the, the Bible is all about, and everything else is just footnotes. Well, it may be in some sense true. Uh, another sense, I think there's more to it than that. But the fact of the matter is that these are important chapters for us to consider and to think on. And we've spent a good bit of time looking at just how glorious, and I, and I really tried uh, with with all that I could to paint a picture for you of what the world was like as God created it. How beautiful it was. How orderly it was. 
how it reflected both his moral character in its purity and his, and his wisdom and power in its structural uh, order. And tried to paint that picture that, that you could almost say, wow, I wish I'd been there. Because it, it, was, it was a perfect world that God created. And yet, that very world that God created is the one that we live in. And it doesn't look much like Genesis chapters 1 and 2 anymore. But we need to understand that in chapter 3, what went wrong. And so we come to chapter 3, and you'll recall we saw in, verses, in the first verse the, the agent of this temptation that comes to Adam and Eve, the, the two first human beings, and that serpent that was the instrument of the, uh, that was of the devil as he sought to speak to the woman. And we saw the occasion of the temptation, the conversation between the woman and the serpent and how the serpent uh, lies to her. And one thing that was very interesting is I recently, just reading some more, recognized that the serpent never gives her any action to take. He never tells her what to do. He only sows doubt and gets her thinking. And she becomes a pragmatist, a self-autonomous, that is a self-ruling individual and makes decisions based on her own assessment of things and her own desires for things. And so that's the occasion of the temptation. And then in verses 6 through 8, we saw the success of the temptation in the sin of the woman and the man, the woman being deceived, the man rebelling, and the image bearers being marred. And we began last time, looking last week, looking at the consequences of the sin, the judgment, which I think can be broken down into three parts. We saw the first part last time, the, the examination that took place. And this evening, we'll look at the sentencing that's going to take place. And then we'll look at the initial execution uh, of the punishment. We looked at the examination of Adam and Eve in verses 9 through 13. And God came with those two very pointed questions, really, that with another one that was added in the middle. But the two really pointed ones, where are you and what have you done? Two very pointed questions that come down even to us today. And, and in fact, as I was going back over this, I, I really need to say that uh, there's a word that was missing in my heading. I said, God examines Adam and Eve, and I really needed the word merciful or mercifully. God mercifully examined Adam and Eve. He didn't come in order to destroy them. He came in order to draw from them a confession. Well, this evening we come to then verses 14 through 19, where God righteously sentences the serpent, the man, and the woman. God righteously sentences the serpent, the man, and the, and the woman. Now, I originally had used the word judgment for this section, and I guess that's an appropriate word in one sense, but there's another sense in which judgment's really not yet 
uh, here. It's a proclamation of judgment, judgment that's going to come. But he, he doesn't actually uh, bring about in these verses the actual judgment. He just pronounces it. He sentences them. So, for instance, with the serpent, first of all, God sentences the serpent, verses 14 and 15. And Yahweh God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than any of the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now notice as we come to the sentencing of the serpent, something which you've probably already seen, there's no discussion. There's no negotiations. There's no pointing out of his sin. There's no opportunity for, for the evil one. There's no questions given him that he might repent. Because there is no possibility of his repenting. He has forsaken his place. I believe Revelation 12 and verse 9 describes for us how uh, God had been dealing with the devil when, it, when we read, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. He was cast out of heaven. He was lost his place there uh, in, in God's presence. I think it's very likely as well that Jude has something to say about these demonic beings when he says that they were demons who were held in darkness until judgment. They abandoned their proper abode, Jude writes. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Whether these directly, especially as Jude passages, directly speaks of these angels or not, the fact of the matter is there's no opportunity given for Satan to repent. And had there been an opportunity, he would not have accepted it, for he is pure evil. And so we read then of the judgment that comes to him. And here's where we, first of all, read of a curse in verse 14. Because you have done this, cursed are you more than any of the cattle, more than every beast of the field. Cursed are you. Now, you, you want me to go into whether or not he lost his legs or his wings? I won't, because I don't know. Oh, yes, I know there's little stubs on the backs of the snake that may be the leg. No, I, I don't think that's really that important, to be honest with you. Uh, it might be interesting, but it's not really important here. Uh, Whatever the beast was before or is at the time of this, the fact of the matter is anything that happened in the animal kingdom where this actual serpent is made to crawl around on his belly and be treated as the lowest of the animals is merely just a picture of something far greater. As one man put it, the punishment of the serpent corresponded to the crime. It had exalted itself above the man. Therefore, upon its belly it should go, and dust it should eat all the days of its life. If there were any immediate change in the physical appearance and activity of the serpent, I believe it was merely to serve as a sign or a symbol of what was going to be done to the devil. Don't get caught up in trying to figure out 
what this animal was or what it became. That's really not the important point. The important point is that this being, and I believe more so speaking of the devil, was cursed at this point in time. He is condemned. The word means to hem in with obstacles and to render powerless to resist is one way to understand it. He was put in a position where there was no way out of the condemnation that was being pronounced upon him. And when it speaks about going on his belly, this is really a picture often used to describe degradation, deepest degradation, abject humility. He has been leveled. He has been floored, this one. And to eat dust, to use just a slight little pun, is to describe a crushing defeat, total annihilation. Now, you can look at Micah 7, 17 sometime if you'd like, but there we, we read that they will lick the dust like a serpent, like reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses to Yahweh our God. They will come in dread and they will be afraid before you. In other words, they are going to be utterly defeated and humiliated before the Lord. Isaiah 49 in verse 23, kings will be your guardians and their princes, your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet. They're just going to be completely demolished, completely condemned, completely uh, humiliated uh, in, in their defeat. And that's what I believe we have a picture of here. This Satan, this serpent, this devil who was seeking to undermine God's world and erase the image of God that was seen in man and seek to disrupt all of God's plans is going to be degraded, humiliated, and defeated. It goes on in verse 15 to even highlight that again. And it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. I believe this again describes the disappointment of the designs that this serpent had with God's people. This enmity. He was seeking to, make, to, to stir up enmity between the woman and the man and God. He wanted them to be at war with God and join his side, which in some sense they did. But then God comes in and God, again, is not relinquished any of his authority or his responsibility or his power. And he just comes and speaks to this serpent who has disrupted things. And he just says, you know what? I'm going to put enmity here. I'm going to start the war. And the war is going to be between you and the woman. Between your seed and her seed. You're not going to get the last word here. And what a merciful thing this is, just to, to note, that God did not leave Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, allied with the serpent. But he declares war. 
That's what verse 15 really says. And the serpent sitting there should hear this. He declares war. I will put enmity between you and the woman, this one whom you thought was your agent for accomplishing your purposes and you deceived to go along with you. I'm going to put enmity between you. And I think that's more than just make every woman afraid of snakes. That is, this woman and her offspring are not going to be aligned purely and, and irrevocably with Satan. Now, we do have to ask the word and understand what it means by seed here. Right? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. How does a serpent have seed? Is that, again, is this just the little snakes? How does, how does the devil have seed versus the woman? We know how a woman has seed. She, she gives birth to children. Seed, I believe here, means, and means pro posterity. And I think it's more than just physical posterity, because again, the devil can't have physical posterity, but it's a, a realm of people, human beings, that are of a particular kind, either aligned with the serpent or aligned with God. It's the seed of the serpent, and that's all men in rebellion against God. The seed of the woman, that is all men redeemed by God. Turn with me to one passage that I think kind of highlights this for us, and that's in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Verses 7 through 10. God said, or John writes, little children, 1 John 3, verse 7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, speaking of Jesus Christ or God, is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice, and as some have said, practice by way, as a way of life, righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And so I see, I believe we see in this verse the, the division of mankind. Because in this verse we see not only war, but redemption. And we know that from those of us who know our Bibles and have, have heard this before, the end of verse 13, where it now becomes very singular with regard to the seed, and it's a masculine singular, he shall bruise you. The seed of the woman, this singular one, shall bruise you, serpent, on the head. He's going to, or some of the translations use the word crush. He's going to crush your head. And if you've ever seen an old Western movie, you know how they always kill the snake, right? Either chop off its head or you smash it. Or you shoot it with a six gun, right? But the fact of the matter is you go for the head and it's a deadly blow and that's what's going to happen. There's going to be one who comes from the woman who is going to give a death blow to the serpent and the serpent in the process is going to give a painful bite on his heel. 
Now, some of you are hearing ringing in your ears, aren't you? That, that Irish uh, lilt by a man who preached on this passage. Excellent message on Genesis 3.15. And this, of course, this seed of the woman who's going to crush the head is Jesus. This is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, who defeated Satan in the wilderness, and then who finally and fully defeated Satan on the cross, and especially in his resurrection. But the bottom line here at this point in time, I just want to highlight this. The serpent's, the devil's plans, as he hears these words, his plans are doomed to failure. He is doomed to defeat. And he is destined for destruction. That's what Yahweh God says to the serpent. Your plans have failed you're doomed to be defeated, and more than that, you are going to be utterly destroyed. Now, while this is devastating to the serpent, as I mentioned, it does introduce a significant note of mercy. Adam and Eve evidently hear these words spoken. But beginning with verse 15, I probably could or should add another word to my heading, and that is again the word mercy. He mercifully sentences them. But there's no mercy to the, to, the, to the serpent, so I didn't put it in my heading. But from here on, we see a lot of mercy. Now, I hate to disappoint all of you, but I'm not going to say anything more about 315 at this point in time. That'll be another sermon by itself later. Because it's just too big to try to do in, in the midst of all of this. I want us to get on and, and, and see how God deals, not only with the serpent in this whole situation, but also with the woman and the man. And so then he comes, secondly, Yahweh God to the woman, verse 16. God sentences the woman. And the sentence is this, you will know pain and you will know tension and turmoil. I sentence you to a life marked by pain and by turmoil. And as the verse says, verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and conception or inconception. In pain, you will bear children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Your pain, he says, I will greatly multiply your pain in your conception. In pain, you will bear children. You get the point. There's a lot of pain here for the woman. Literally, Making great, I will make great your pain. And then he repeats it, in pain, you will have, you'll bring forth children. She can anticipate a lot of pain. Now, what's interesting here, though, is she, he uses the word multiply. I will multiply, greatly multiply your pain. I will greatly multiply your pain. Well, this word multiply was used once else, one, one other time in these early chapters. It was as man and wife, they were to be fruitful and multiply. And so God is saying this pain is going to come in the very place that is your role. 
the physical pain, the emotional pain, the spiritual pain that you will face in this process for which you were created. I think there's a wordplay here on multiply. You, you were to multiply image bearers, but now it's going to be multiplied with pain. Now that comes across different to every woman. Some give birth to babies and it's like, how do they do that? And others go, give me drugs! Because the pain is very, very, very painful. It's very great. But that's part of what he says. This is part of the sentence. Because you have violated your role in the order of things and brought this to your husband. He doesn't say, you know, he doesn't say any of that. We're just, we just have to assume that. God doesn't even go into the time of telling her what she did wrong, why she did it wrong. He just says right to the point of the sentencing. And he says to her, you're going to have pain. But then he also says, you're going to have tension and turmoil. He says in verse 16, in the latter half, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Tension and turmoil. There's going to be a power struggle in the home. There's going to be a battle over who's going to lead. You're going to want to rule, woman, he says, the woman to the woman. But your husband's going to dominate you. Now, if you look with me at chapter 4 and verse 7, you see the similar the use of these words in a very different setting. But we see something to get a, a flavor for what these words are like in, in God dealing with Cain. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7. If you do well... Will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not well, sin is lying at the door. And here's the words. Its desire is for you. It's like this roaring beast that wants to take you. And we'll come to this later. But I just want you to see. It's sin desires Cain. Desires to rule over him. Desires to master him. But you must rule over it. You are to dominate it. Do not let it master you. And you take those two concepts of Cain's responsibility to try to master the sin and sin's efforts to dominate him. And that's the picture of what the home's going to be like. There's going to be a power struggle. Now, we'll come to talk about that a little bit more, but I think you're kind of getting the idea as to um, what's behind some of the problems, if we're going to be good diagnosticians, some of the problems in our present culture between men and women. It did not grow out of a patriarchal abuse of authority over time. It grows out of the fall. But then I, I must add that there's so much mercy also mentioned here. Did you notice it? She is a helper to the husband. They together are to be fruitful and multiply. And he says, in that very act of multiplying, that for which you were made, that role which you have as woman in this early setting here, you will continue. You'll still have children. You'll still be able to have children. Oh, now it's going to be totally changed. And we'll come back to that in, in, uh, toward the end of here. We start talking about the applications. But you will be able to bear children. You will still have a husband. There will still be a home in which you will live. And if she had embraced that, that would have been at least something of the order restored from Genesis chapter 1. 
Her role will be maintained. She will be man's helper. She will still serve in the capacity of helping multiplying of image bearers of God. But it will be with pain and it will be with turmoil. But now we go to the man. Then to Adam, he said. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now notice the first thing that God does with the man. He specifically identifies his rebellion. You listened to another voice other that was contrary to mine. You listened to a voice, a word, that was contrary to my word. You listened to the voice of your wife rather than obeying my voice. And let me just throw the thing out there that's in all of our minds. What if he hadn't eaten? I don't know what they would have done, so I'm not even going to go there. It's, it's, it's all speculation, but the fact of the matter is he did eat. But you see, God doesn't... Now, gentlemen, get a hold of this. God doesn't go to the woman and say, it's all your fault. So, man, you cannot say, it's the woman. No, God says, Adam... You listened to her voice. You did something. You heeded. You obeyed. You heard her voice and obeyed her voice rather than my voice. And you ate from the tree that I commanded you you should not eat from. You violated my direct command. Here is your sin. And brethren, there's a sense in which Sin could be said to always start when we start listening to a voice other than God's. When it's the voice of pleasure, the voice of our soul that wants first place, the voice of our heart that wants to dominate, or, wants to, it's, or the voice of somebody else, the scientists, or, or the boss, or, and I listen to that voice. Now, I'm responsible for the voices I listen to. You're responsible for the voices you listen to. That's why, young people, you need to be very careful listening to the internet. Because there's all kinds of voices out there coming into your lives. And you have to sort through, which one am I going to listen to? You need to listen to this one, first and foremost. And this one often comes to you through two other mouths, young people. Mom and dad. So where should you be listening? Where are the primary voices you should be listening to? God's voice coming to you through God-appointed authority. And through God's word. But the fact of the matter is, there is no blame that Adam can give to anyone else. God comes to him and says, you heeded her voice. You violated my command. I told you not to eat and you ate. It's all on you, Adam. And so the sentencing then comes. The judgment in verses 17b through 19. The ground is cursed and you will die. You will have a lifelong you will have lifelong pain in all your labors. So the wife has pain in her labor, you're going to have pain in your labor. It's going to be lifelong. 
all of your life. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Each and every day of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat, you will eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. It's going to be tough. It's going to be difficult. Now, whether there were weeds before that were edible weeds or weeds for the animals that existed before the fall, and that was something that man was supposed to, to work through so that the animals had enough and he had enough, I, I can't tell you. But the fact of the matter is the weeds are now going to take over. And it's going to give you a whole lot more weed. And I'm not talking about the edible kind. I'm talking about the kind that just, are, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't touch. They're just going to take over. That's just the plan. It's going to be difficult. and It's going to cause a life of trial. And when you're going to try to get something to grow, it's not going to grow, but the weeds will grow. Did you ever think about that? Why do weeds always grow? Rain or shine, summer, or winter, but the plants were trying to get that flower bush that <clears throat> is brown all year long. You know, it's, 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 a, it's just a picture of this reality that the curse is upon the ground and it doesn't produce without sweat. There's going to be hindrances. And then the ultimate part of the sentencing is you will return to the dust. You will die. One man put it very well when he said, the man's natural relationship to the ground to rule over it, right? Remember, he's to uh, use it and subdue it. He says, is reversed. Instead of submitting to him, it resists and will eventually swallow him. The dust he's supposed to be tilling is going to be his trouble and it's going to take him in death. Man's stewardship is God's, of God's creation then becomes very complicated. Every advancement has detrimental effects. Let me just tell you, gentlemen and ladies, uh, work is always going to be difficult. And we shouldn't be surprised that it's difficult. Actually, we should probably be a little more surprised that things went smoothly. Like our computer started up. Whoa! And didn't crash. Whoa! I turn on the dryer. Wow! It started up. The dishwasher worked. Whoa, we should be going. This is amazing in a fallen world that any of this still works. We should expect it to be difficult. We should expect it to be problematic. And let me just say just a little application right here. Just throw this in for you men. Any women, for those who are in the workplace, beware of always looking for the job with no hindrances. It's called heaven, and it doesn't exist before then. Right? You might get the, oh, I got the greatest of bosses, but I am just sitting here counting beans. Or you might get a great job. Look at this great thing I've got to do, but then I've got to work with this person in the office, and they won't shut up. And there's just going to be constantly these hindrances to be expected in, the, in this world. Why? We're reading about it right here. The hindrances are there in our work. Expect it. And yet, in the midst of all these hindrances, 
Do you see the mercy? In the midst of the pronouncement of judgment or the sentencing, he's still going to keep his role. He's still going to keep his role. And God will still provide for him. Notice what it says, verses 17b through 19. Look at it. You will eat. You will eat. You will eat. What was he guilty of? Eating what he wasn't supposed to eat. But God says, I will still take care of you. You will eat. Oh, yes, it's going to be with sweat. Oh, yes, it's going to be with pain. But while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Or Acts 14, 17. God did not leave himself without a witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. It is of the Lord's mercies, brethren, that we are not consumed. Every moment. Do you see it? He's... Step back from it. Let's remind ourselves of what the sin is. It's called rebellion. It's called treason. One of the highest crimes against the king in Britain, because I looked it up. And one of the highest crimes you can commit in America is treason against the government or treason against the king. They committed treason. They rebelled and rejected God's rule and sought to become autonomous rulers of their own lives, living things the way they wanted to live them, according to their desires and their perspectives. They had aligned themselves with the lie of the evil one. They had exchanged the glory of God, not even for a four-footed creature, They believed the lie. You know what I expect? If it, why didn't God just wipe them out? So I'm done with this. Forget these two. But he didn't. God's purposes are, are, are multiple, multi, multiplied. I mean, they're, they're, he's, God wants to get glory to himself by showing his grace to guilty sinners. He can't do that unless there's guilty sinners. And this was his plan. He knew all along. It never caught him by surprise. The serpent didn't sneak in. Oh, I forgot I made him and kicked him out of heaven. How did he get in there? He, he knew all that. And in his sovereignty, all of this was orchestrated. And, 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 and he was very much aware of it. Though Adam had a very free will, unlike any of us have ever had, not bound by any kind of sinful perspectives like we have from birth. And yet he chose to rebel. Within God's sovereignty, to plan that, he chose to fall, that this sentence might be given. The devil, your head is going to be crushed because I'm going to send a redeemer and he's going to crush it. Oh, what a blessed God we have. My friends, in terms of applications, 
from this. They're, they're manifold. They're, they're just a plethora of them. But just coming back to something, and I don't want to turn this into a worldview lecture because my students have already heard that. <laughs> but, you, but you see, this chapter helps us to understand the beginning of the answer for how suffering and evil came into the world of humans. Where did suffering and evil come from? We have a picture right here. Now, one of the things that we need to, to realize is that every worldview has to come up with an answer to the question, where did suffering and evil come from? Every worldview has to have, answer that question. And so, if somebody tries to stick you, whoa, where did evil and suffering come from? You call yourself a Christian. Yeah, well, right here in Genesis 3. Oh, you believe that? Yeah, I do, because God said it, wrote it down for me, made it easy for me. And, and, you know, we don't have to be anymore. They're, they're dogmatic. Oh, it's the corporations. All those evil corporations that they've corrupted the world. It's capitalism that's corrupted the world. It's religion that's corrupted the world. All the wars in the world are based on, on, on religious realities. Every worldview has to come up with that. For the naturalist, it's just, well, you know what? Too bad. Things happen. For the guy who's just the spiritual guy who just kind of lives out in a, you know, a spiritual realm, the New Age movement or something like that, it's just all a big illusion. It doesn't really exist. You're not really sick. Just bad thinking. Karma, you know, what goes around comes around. Those are all the kinds of solutions they come up with. But, brethren, we've got an answer to where suffering came from. It comes from man's rebellion against God. Now, suffering is not difficult to define. Suffering is that painful thing that you go through, whether it's an emotional or physical thing. And it's, and it's pain that comes into your life and, and produces suffering and, and sorrow. But evil, you see, that's a little more difficult to define, isn't it? And this is what's one of the big challenges to the world. Think about this for a minute. The world has to come up with a definition of what is evil. What's the standard for evil? We know what the standard is. It's a violation of God's command. That's evil. Good is obeying God's commands. That's exactly what we have right here. What did, when did evil begin in the human race? When they violated God's command. When do you commit evil? When do we commit evil? When we violate God's commands. He's given us his word. He's told us how we're supposed to live. He's given us a whole host of things to describe who we are and how we ought to think and what we ought to do. And evil is not doing what God requires. Oh, all right, that's sin, isn't it? Sin is not being what God requires, or not doing what God requires, or being what God forbids, or doing what God forbids. It's living contrary to God's word. And we've got an answer for it. So we can look at a situation and we can evaluate. Is that evil or is that good? I don't have to wait for the next Psychology Today magazine to tell me whether it's good or not. I don't have to wait for the new, I think it's a DSM. You know, the, the, the next man, man, mag, magazine to come out and tell me all of the bad things that could happen. I don't have to, right? 
Because I've got that manual right here. And so the fact of the matter is, I know what evil and what good is. And understanding this helps us understand our culture. Helps us understand why people do bad things. They sin because they're sinners. They're not sinners because they sin. Well, yes, but first comes first, right? I am a sinner. I come into this world this way, and therefore I do what I do because I am who I am. My will is bound to this original sin, this sinful nature that I come into the world with. Thank you, Adam. And therefore I, I sin. So when we think of the problem of evil and suffering in the world. We begin in the past, right? Your worldview students are listening now. This was on your last test, right? We begin in the past, right? In the past, we have the origin of sin and evil in the human race, the fall of Adam. In the past, we see that man's rebellion resulted in a fallen world and a fallen race. God made man upright, but they sought out many schemes. And he continues in that rebellion, and the suffering spreads. And sin and death and suffering spread through the whole world because, as we saw in Romans chapter 5, one man sinned, we sinned. Sin spread to all men. Death spread to all men. But there's something else in the past that we need to remember that helps us understand the problem of sin and evil, and that's the solution. Because see, the solution's in the past too, isn't it? And it was there at the cross when the Lord Jesus Christ laid down His life in obedience to His Father and died upon the cross under the wrath of God, and he absorbed that wrath for his people, and he was buried, and he rose again. Why? We are this totally depraved people. I loved what we had in Sunday school. Right? We're these totally depraved people that have no opportunity, no way to go back to God on our own, and so God says, I'll make a way. I'm going to send somebody who's going to be a serpent crusher, He's going to do it by dying on the cross and being buried and rising again and sitting at my right hand on behalf of his people. There is the past, the origin of suffering and evil, and the answer to suffering and evil. It's found in Jesus Christ and him alone. And in the future, we have another part of the solution, right? We say, well, if, if God is all good, he would destroy evil. If God is all powerful, he could destroy evil. Evil has not been destroyed. So what's the conclusion? He hasn't finished yet. That's the conclusion. He will destroy evil one day. He will do away with suffering one day, but it's not right now. The conclusion is not, well, there must not be any all-good or all-powerful God. There is an all-powerful, all-good God, and your existence proves it. And your heart confirms it. God will come one day, and he'll make a new heavens and a new earth, and there will be all nothing but righteousness, and what a glorious day and glorious place that will be. And in the present, God does not delight in our suffering. He uses it for our good. He uses it like a gracious heavenly father in the lives of his children so as to mold them and shape them and deliver them from sin and cause them to mature and reflect the character of God and to awaken a hope for heaven. God promises his presence in the midst of all of our suffering. Lo, I am with you always. I will never leave you nor forsake you, it says elsewhere. 
And in a very un unusual passage in Isaiah, he says, in all their sufferings, in all their afflictions, I was afflicted. Wow, that's, that's mind-boggling. But this is the God that we serve. He's got a purpose in all this. And he offers forgiveness through Jesus Christ in the present to all who believe. It's not just a past act that says, okay, well, that was for them. It was a past action which has present results. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not just that life is miserable. It's not just that life is difficult. He doesn't promise us that we'll have a joyful life. He doesn't promise us that we'll have a happy life. He doesn't promise us that the, everything will work out in our families. He doesn't promise us everything will work out in our jobs. What he promises us is to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. What he promises is that guilt can be dealt with. It's dealt with at the cross. What he promises is that being united to Christ, we have access to the Father. What he promises is that we are adopted into his family. What he promises is that his very spirit will dwell within us. These are the things we're going to be seeing more and more in the book of Romans. You see, there is an answer to evil and suffering. It's a glorious answer. The God-man suffered so that we wouldn't have to. But I just want you to see Well, let me jump to this application. I'll come back to that one. I'll have to do that one later. When you sin, what should you do? What does this passage teach us about what we should do when we sin? Over there. Their problem. They, they, they caused it. She did this. He did that. Or as... No, I want to... Don't point the finger at Satan. Oh yeah, he's out there. There's a real devil out there and he's really active in this world and all of his demons are, are active in this world and there's a lot at his disposal. But don't point the finger at Satan. Don't point the finger at Adam and Eve. Don't point the finger at somebody else. Point the finger at your own deceptive heart. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's where you point the finger when sin arises. Take the blame. Take the onus for your own sin. Repent of your pride, your covetousness, your unbelief, your, uh, your efforts at autonomy. And you see what sin is. Sin is lawlessness. But another way to say it is sin is rebellion. Sin is treasonous. See, see it for what it is. And take, take responsibility and repent of it. Don't try to cover up with some fig leaf uh, excuse. Just the way I was born. Just the way I was brought up. It was the system I was educated in. It's the way my parents treated me. It's the trauma that I went through as a child. If it's a violation of God's word, it's sin. Own it, repent of it, and find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That's how you deal with sin. Take God at his word as to what you should be doing, what you haven't been doing, and how to deal with it in Christ. My friends, 
if you sit here tonight and you've got your sin and it's still on your record, you're in a very dangerous place. Because you see, God doesn't relinquish his place as Lord. He created everything and therefore he is Lord of everything. And you owe him your 100% obedience and allegiance. And to any degree that you fall short, the answer is Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you fall short of the glory of God, the answer is found in Jesus Christ. Go to Christ, confessing your sins, forsaking your sins. Trust in him to cleanse you of your sins. Deal with your sins with one another in the, in the way that, it, in, in the presence, as it were, of Jesus Christ himself. Deal with these things. There's an answer. It all begins here in Genesis 3. May God help us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, be gracious. Be gracious to help us understand the truth of your word and to act in light of it for the glory of your name. Forgive us for the many ways in which we rebel against you on a daily basis. Wash us thoroughly in your blood. Be gracious to us according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out our transgressions. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.